Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles, Mark chapter 3. We want to continue to pray for the unity of God's Holy Spirit as the NFL football season begins. <laughs> Remember, you're a Christian first, those other things second. It's good to be together. God bless this time. Lord, uh, come, be in our midst. Thank you, Lord, for the time of worship. We thank you for these gifted leaders up front here and their hearts. And Lord, I thank you for the heart of this congregation, Lord, uh, that rather than sitting and uh, enjoying a performance, allows their hearts to be ushered in. And how good it is for us, Lord, um, to stand side by side with a group of others uh, that want to give you the glory that you're due. And Lord, how good that is for our hearts. And so, Lord, continue to bless us now as we continue in your presence through the study of your word. We pray that your word would speak to the deep places of our hearts, or that you would teach us and grow us as a result of our time here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we are in Mark chapter 3. A couple weeks ago when we were together, we were looking at the story of the calling of Levi, uh, and we, we looked at that story from his perspective and what it must have been like for a fellow that is the worst of the worst sinners of society in that day. Uh, to have Jesus approach him and say, I want you to follow me, just like I asked these nice Jewish boys to come follow me. Come, follow me. And he did. And then last week, we went back and looked at the story of Levi from the perspective of the Pharisees and the religious leaders that were looking on. Uh, well, today, we're going to look at something we looked at last week from the perspective of the, Levi, the religious leaders and the Levites and so on. Today we're going to look at that story from the perspective of the man himself. And that, again, is the fellow with the withered hand. You may recall we took some time with him. A man whose hand was paralyzed. The word specifically there, paralyzed from some kind of an accident. Something happened in his life and his hand was no longer able to function as it once was able to do so. And he comes into the synagogue on that particular Saturday morning. And Jesus, it says, uh, sees him there, calls him up to the front of the synagogue, and he heal, heals this fellow. And of course, last week we looked at it from the perspective of the religious leaders. That's unacceptable. We don't do that on a Saturday morning. We don't do that on a Sabbath. You know, that's it. You've pushed us one too far, Jesus, and so on. Well, today I want to go back, as I said, I want to look at it, at what that must have been like for this fellow, and then we'll move on from there. Starting again in verse 1, it says, Now, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, they being the leaders, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal uh, him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, the leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Here's the Lord. And he sees this guy. Now remember, Jesus could heal this guy that day. He could heal him the next day. He could heal him secretly behind the synagogue if he wanted to. But Jesus decides to make a point of their bad theology, essentially. And Jesus decides to bring the guy up front and center and heal him in that moment there in front of all those people there, knowing it's going to cause a problem. It's going to cause an issue. Again, Jesus could have found the guy and sort of whispered to him, look, man, come see me after service. I'll meet you behind the building. You know, we'll take care of this thing right now. But I don't really want to get into the hassle with these people. But he did want to get into a hassle with these people. These need, people needed to be hassled. Some people need to be hassled from time to time. Just not me. Don't hassle me. Leave me alone. All right, but a lot of people need to be hassles. And he calls the guy up front. He says, come here, come on up here. He says to him, uh, is it to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? And they don't answer. And he, Jesus is like, you know, you guys, really? And so he gets a little frustrated with them, as he should. But then he says to the guy, stretch out your hand. He says to the paralyzed man, stretch out your hand. I, I, 
I wouldn't be shocked to read here in the story, and the man responded, I can't stretch out my hand. I have a paralyzed hand. That's part of my problem for why I'm here. And Jesus tells the man to do something that he obviously hadn't been able to do for a long period of time. And the fella, the guy could have argued with Jesus. He could have explained the many reasons why he couldn't do what Jesus was telling him to do, or he could do what Jesus told him to do. And he could obey Jesus and stretch out his hand. The the man could have said, Lord, I can't stretch out my hand, it's withered. Make it whole first, and then I'll stretch out my hand. But Jesus says to him, stretch it out, and you'll see it become whole. The man doesn't debate Jesus here. He simply says, okay, he stretches out his hand. And this is what I love about this story. This is why I wanted to go back and look at it a little more is as he obeys and stretches out his hand, the Lord meets him in that place of faith and brings about a complete healing in this man's life. And the reason why I bring it up this morning is because I think in some way, many of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, we are paralyzed in some way. That there's a part of us that, that Jesus wants to do in our lives and he wants to move us forward in a particular area of our lives. There's a part of us that is not whole and we're paralyzed, so to speak. We're not moving forward in those particular areas. We have deemed, we have determined, we're unable to move forward in those particular areas. So let me give you some examples of this. Some of us are paralyzed in our ability to love a husband or a wife that we have grown to despise. And so we're still with that particular person. We know what the scripture says. Husbands, love your wives and give yourself for your wife. Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. We know what the Bible says about those particular issues, but our particular circumstance tells us I can't do that. I can't love my wife in that way. I can't submit to my husband in that way. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. Some of us are paralyzed and we're stuck in an area of addiction. And so some of us in this room are stuck with an addiction to a substance. Some of us are addicted to pornography. Some of us are addicted to a destructive lifestyle. And Jesus calls into our lives and says, lay it down and come follow me. And our response to that is, I can't lay it down. I'm addicted to that particular thing. Some of us are in the grip of pride and selfishness, arrogance self-righteousness, just like those religious leaders that are sitting in that particular room. And that is who we are, we believe. And Jesus says to us, you know what, I want you to lay those things down and take up a garment of righteousness. And our response is, our initial response might be, I can't put those things off. This is just who I am. I'm proud. I'm arrogant. I'm self-righteous. It's who I am. It's who I've always been. This morning, what Jesus says to each one of us about this, he says, stretch forth your hand. There's another place where there's a fellow there at the temple and he's uh, laying on his mat. And that's a story where the water is stirred up and whoever can get into the water is healed, however that worked out there. And this particular fellow can never get into the water. And Jesus sees him and he says, do you wish to be made well? And he says, well, I can't. Every time you know, somebody else beats me into the water. And it's almost as if Jesus doesn't say it, but it's almost as if he says, no, no, do you want to be made well? Do you want to stretch out your hand? Do you want to deal with that issue of addictions? Do you want to deal with your hard-heartedness toward your spouse or that area of sin that just seems to be hanging in your life? Do you want to deal with it? Well, then deal with it. Stretch forth your hand, he says. The solution is to obey the command of Jesus Christ. And it's as we obey that command, Jesus meets us at that point of faith. And so husbands, you're called to love your wives. And one of the simplest ways you can love your wives is get up and do some housework. Amen, ladies? Amen. And so you're thinking, I don't want to get up and do some housework. I worked a long day. I'm tired. I just mowed the lawn. She didn't mow the lawn. You know, one of these things. And Jesus says, get up and do the dishes. I can't get up and do the dishes, Lord. You know what? You can. You can. And here's what happens is you get up and you go and you do the, start doing the dishes And Jesus empowers you to do those dishes. And he brings a joy into your heart, even as you're wrestling with what you don't want to do. And that's just, you know, this simple thing here. It's when you want to respond with a cutting remark to someone, and you look to the Lord, and you're like, Lord, I know I shouldn't, but it's it's just what comes out. And I got a good one right now to give her, you know. But you give that over to the Lord, 
And then the next time it's a little easier, and the next time it's a little easier, and the next time it's a little easier. And what begins to develop is you're a person that loves your wife, as Jesus called you to love your wife, or loves your husband, and submits your husband, as he's called you to do so. Is that making sense? What he does is he meets us at the point of faith and obedience, and he gives us the power to carry it out. And so one of the things I think we would all learn a valuable lesson is if we stop saying, I can't do that. I can't do that particular thing that Jesus is calling me to do because Jesus meets us and he empowers us to do those things that we believe to be impossible. And so we forgive even when we don't feel like forgiving any longer. And we keep going back to the Lord for strength to forgive again and again and again, even when the bitterness and the anger resurfaces again and again and again. We lay aside temptations and we take those steps to get rid of them, lest we return to them. And we seek the Lord for his strength moment by moment by moment as we do so. That's our stretching forth of our hands. And we do that in faith and obedience. And then Jesus takes care of the rest. And he slowly begins or little by little begins to change us to the person he would have us to be. There's a great little quote. Sometimes I like to have little sort of quotes in my mind that I don't have to like preach this whole sermon to myself again, but I remember that quote and I know the, the point of the sermon, so to speak, or the portion of a scripture verse. There's a scripture verse that I, I, I misquote. It's, it's out of context, but I know what it means to me. And it's my head. I can do whatever I want in my head. Uh, and and it's, it's in Song of Solomon. And, and it talks about uh, my own vineyard I have not kept. Now, it means something completely different. But to me, that means what are you doing to take care of your home? and your household, and your family. And so from time to time, when I realize I'm sort of drifting from where I need to be as far as focus is concerned, I just tell myself, and his own vineyard he had not kept. And I know what it means. It's a sermon that I preached to myself in five words or whatever. Well, here's another one here. As we think of God's commands that are too hard for us to do, the commandments of God are the enablement of God. We have it up here on the screen. The commandments of God are the enablement of God. Jesus would never tell you to love your wife as Christ loved the church if you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't have the power and the ability to do that. He empowers us to do that. Jesus would never tell you to steer clear of that particular addictive substance if you didn't have the power to steer clear of that particular substance. Now, again, in yourself, you don't. But he empowers us. He enables us. He strengthens us to do those things that we believe to be impossible. God will never command us to do something without also enabling us to do that very thing. So I encourage you in this. Take some moment, not now, but at some point, and meditate on these issues. Is there an area in your Christian walk where you feel paralyzed or stuck or unable to move forward? Is there an area in your life, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, and there's this particular area or maybe these areas in your life where you just haven't seemed to grow in that particular area? Or maybe you're a relatively new believer. And you're being faced with a lot of areas in your life where Jesus is shining his light on those particular areas. Bring those areas to the Lord and know this, that the commandments of God are the enablements of God. Obey him, move forward, and he takes it from there. Amen? That's why I wanted to go back over that passage again. I think it's a valuable thing for us to consider. Let's go on to verse 7. It said, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest the crowd crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So sometime after those interactions that we were considering in that synagogue and so on, Jesus now begins to make some plans with his disciples. Now Jesus had in his lifetime, like when he was on the earth and things like that, there were times where there were 70 close disciples we see another instance where there were about 120 of them. You know, Jesus had a good number, a nucleus, if you will. He had his real close ones, which we're going to look at today, of the 12. He had a closer group of three there. But, you know, sort of his gathering group was 120 or so, 100 people, let's just say. 
but thousands of people would also come to kind of press in to hear and then they'd go on their way and do their particular thing. And so Jesus is making some plans to get away with his closer group of disciples there, that smaller group. And we see here in verse 8, it says, as great crowds are hearing about him, they're coming to him. Now notice it says, from all Israel and even from beyond. Now Jesus was up in the Galilee region. And so again, if you think of Israel as sort of this rectangle, uh, the upper portion of the rectangle, the top portion of the rectangle is the Galilee region. And what the passage says is people were coming to him from Judea and from Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem was about 100 miles away. Portions of Judea, about 150 miles away. Tyre and Sidon were out on the Mediterranean coast. So the upper left-hand side of that rectangle, if you think of it that way. And that was about 50 or 60 miles away here. People are coming from all over to come and hear Jesus because the word of what Jesus is doing in people's lives was going out. And it wasn't going out through radio or TV or podcast or things like that. It was just simply going out as one person told another person what this guy was doing up in the Galilee region. One person telling another, which is still the best way for the report of Jesus to go forward and spread. When one person tells another what God has done in their life and then invites them to have him do the same thing in their own life. And because people were doing that, desperate people were coming to the Lord to see what Jesus was doing, to hear what he was teaching, to take part in the miracles that he was performing, all those things he was doing. Verse uh, 8 tells us a great crowd heard of that and came to him. So many so, as the crowd was pressing in on him, there was this very real fear that he would be crushed. And so to prevent that, Jesus said to his disciples, let's put out into the boat. Let's get a boat ready now either to escape the area or to push out from the land a bit so the people couldn't press in on him one way or the other. And we see both of those instances other places in in the, uh, the Gospels. The people were pressing in on him. John Lennon said in the 1960s that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. We have some old people here. Where are you? Oh, you remember that? All right, there. And it was scandalous that he said that particular thing. Now, if you remember video footage of those mobs, I I, I wasn't alive then, but I've seen video footage. What'd she say? What'd you say? You mocked me. But I've seen video footage of the crazy girls screaming, you know, at the airport and all that kind of stuff, and the people pressing in to get near to John and Paul and George and that other guy, and Ringo, I think. And I think, you know, you think of that in your mind, if you can picture that black and white footage, that scene was a little bit like that. There was just this mob pressing in on them. And people had to keep the people, if you will, away from the Lord. Jesus here is being crushed, if you will, by the crowd. Now, in addition to that mayhem, there were those with unclean spirits. And all that comes with that, those with demons that were falling down before the Lord, that were crying out. I imagine they were crying out loudly, you are the Son of God, they were saying. And as we looked in Mark chapter, I think it was Mark chapter 1 there, where Jesus silences them. Look, I don't want people that have demons to be my lead uh, evangelist. I don't want the demons to be my evangelist. He would quiet them. He would stop them, that they wouldn't speak any further. And so it's no wonder that Jesus, as we saw also in, I think this was Mark chapter 2, Jesus would like to get up early in the morning and get away from crowds like this. Because this is crazy, all that is going on here. Not crazy in a... You get it. It's just nuts. Well, there is, again, the same word. You know, all this pressing in and so on and so forth. And so Jesus would get away, and he would meet with his Father, and he would have those times of prayer. Look at verse 13. Now, he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That's what he did. Boanerges called them the sons of thunder, easier to say, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so 
either we saw Jesus gets into the boat. Either he stayed in the boat and took off with them, or another instance altogether. And Mark's not always chronological. But one way or another, Jesus has this period of time away with these disciples. And he gets away from the crowds uh, into a more intimate setting with the closest of his followers. And from that group, and it becomes evident in the other passages that there's more than 12 guys that are there. And so a lot of other people, and he picks him but not her, and so on and so forth. And it says he appointed 12 whom he named to be the apostles. Now the word apostle, it literally means one who is sent out. That's literally what the term means. We know what it's come to mean in our understanding, but literally the usage of the word there in the Greek is one who is sent out, which is exactly what Jesus is going to do, send these 12 men out. Now there's two primary usages of this word in the New Testament. And the first is specifically referring to the 12 men that Jesus Christ selected who would go on to become the foundation of the church. And so that type of apostle, when I write that in my notes or different places, I use a capital A for that type of apostle. This type of apostle is not present in the church today, despite the fact that there are a lot of people that take the term apostle. I'm apostle so-and-so. And they expect you to listen to them because they're apostle so-and-so. That type of apostle walked with the Lord from the beginning, was later specifically chosen by the Lord, and was a witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and as a result, or among that, given the responsibility to lay the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so that type of apostle with that type of authority is no longer with us any longer. Now there's a second usage of the word apostle that is found in the scriptures. And that refers to other individuals that were sent out to be messengers. Remember, apostle means a sent one. They were sent out to be messengers and ambassadors of Jesus Christ, particularly to unreached regions. And I would suggest to you, we do have that type of apostle today. Missionaries to unreached regions, if you will, are fulfilling this particular role. Though I would shy away from using that term to describe those individuals because of the confusion that would certainly come. Either way, Jesus calls these 12 men. Now notice this about verse 14, because I think this is the key to Christian ministry. And whether you're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a youth group leader or a Bible study leader or whatever it may be, if you're involved in Christian ministry in any way, I think this phrase here, this idea here that's presented is the key to doing that for the long haul. And here we see in verse 14, he said, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Please notice what is listed first. It says that they would be with him. And then they would go out from them. And that order of operations, I would suggest to you, is key in our lives. Because if these men were going to have any power to effectively minister, and whether that is preach or cast out demons as he lists here, or serve others with their lives, or even give their lives. If they were going to have any power to do those things, they would have to first be empowered by the Lord. And the only place that is going to happen is during the times that they spend with Jesus. And sadly, what happens many times in our lives, in our effort to minister for Jesus, we get so busy that we no longer spend any time with Jesus. And so our Bible study times, they become times to find out things for other people. And so we have time in the Bible every single day, but it's preparing Bible studies for other people to learn valuable lessons. No longer for us just to sit and hear what the Lord has to say to us. Our church times, when we gather with the saints at one time of the week or another, it becomes times where we're only ministering to other people and we're no longer allowing the Lord to minister to our hearts. We become like that other account in the scripture. We become like Martha's. And you may recall the story where Martha and Mary, sisters, have Jesus to their home. And Martha, it tells us, is running around like crazy, serving Jesus and all the others and sandwiches and so on and so forth. And she gets mad and actually rebukes the Lord to some degree. Don't you care? Look at all I'm doing here. Tell my sister to help me. Now, her sister was sitting there at the feet of Jesus learning the Bible study that Jesus was teaching. And Martha, running around busy, wants Mary to stop sitting at the feet of Jesus 
so that she can come and serve as well. And so she approaches the Lord. But notice what the Lord, how he responds here. The Lord says, Martha was distracted. She was distracted with much serving. It's so easy to slide into that as a servant of the Lord in one way or another, where we get distracted from him by all the stuff we're doing around us. As we see here, these guys, they were called first to be with Jesus and then to go out and serve Jesus. So any of us that are involved in ministry of some work, you're a pastor, you're a Bible study leader, you're a youth worker, you're a children's church teacher, guard yourself from the tendency of drifting from Jesus even as you're busy serving Jesus. Amen? First he calls them to himself, then he sends them out to minister to others. The order of operation is crucial. Now, a lot of us in this room are, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a Bible study leader, I'm not a children's church teacher, I certainly am never going to work with the youth, or whatever, you know, we, I'm not those people. So we think this word doesn't su- apply to us. I would suggest that it does, and in fact, I'm going to do more than suggest that it does, I'm going to tell you that it does. Because in the same way that a minister of some sorts needs to be empowered to have power, so too do you and I need to be empowered for the daily tasks that God has called us to. And so we talked about earlier, husbands loving your wives, get up and do the dishes. Well, you need to be empowered for doing that. And where does that power, time of power come? It comes from you sitting alone in the Lord's presence. It comes from you waking up early. Some, I don't want to get yelled at again here. Some of you waking up early, meeting with the Lord, getting your heart settled and right for the day, changing your perspective, once again, and being refreshed and empowered to go and do what God called you to do in the home, at your place of work. Have you ever been at work? I used to, I work here now, great people. I work with Will, and Will and I, two great people, all right? And Jim is here, and Kyle is here, and Charlotte is here, and we're just all good people. We all love each other, and there's butterflies flying around while we work. But I used to work in a setting where there was 1,100 other people, a hundred or so that I worked with and a thousand kids that were running around. And inevitably, working with 1,100 other people, interacting with 1,100 other people, things happen that would frustrate you. And regularly, I'd have to pull back and say, I need to go to the bathroom. I didn't have to go to the bathroom seven times a day, but I did go to the bathroom seven times a day to pray or just to take a moment and say, Lord, I'm going to kill this kid. Or, or that teacher, or whatever it may be. And Lord, I, I'm committed. I don't want to kill this kid, but I do. You know what I'm saying? And so you would just get yourself ready again to get back in there, empowered for what God would have you to do. That happens during those intimate, quiet little times, whether it's a formal Bible study time that you're having by yourself in your favorite chair, or it's that moment that you're alone in one of the bathroom stalls. We have to be empowered. We need to be refreshed. We need to be strengthened. And so I say to you, nurture those times. Don't neglect those times. Don't live your Christian life based on Sunday morning's experience. I suspect when this service is over, we're going to go out and we're like, you know what? I'm ready. I'm ready to serve Jesus. Well, that begins to wear away about the third quarter. And you're just frustrated. What is this team? I knew they should have played them during the preseason. You know, and, and so you're, you're frustrated at that particular point in time. You need to be refreshed, refreshed, and refreshed. Now going back to our passage, look at verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to them those whom he desired. Now Luke tells us this same story as well, this account as well. But Luke adds kind of an interesting thing. Look at Luke chapter 6. We'll put it up there on the screen for you, maybe. Luke 6, 12, it says this, in, this day, in these days, he went out up onto the mountain to pray all night. He continued in prayer. And then it goes on to say the exact same thing that happened here. He called 12 people unto himself. Jesus was up on that mountain all night praying. I would imagine many of us in this room, we've had instances where we prayed all night. You know, maybe the next morning we're going to get that medical report from a doctor. And so we stay up all night. We just can't sleep. It's not even like we're purposing to stay up all night praying. We're just up all night and we're praying. God, please, you know, do this, do this, do this, and do that. Jesus is here praying all night. Now, at quick glance, we might think Jesus is like us. He's got a bunch of big 
decisions to make tomorrow morning. And so he's praying all night for wisdom. You know, I hope I pick the right one or all that. Now, that seems ridiculous, right? Because obviously he knows who the right people are. He knows all things. So Jesus isn't up all night praying for wisdom to make the right decisions. He's up all night praying for the people he's going to be picking. So he spends probably two hours on Peter. And oh, Lord, Peter, he needs a lot of prayer. And then he goes on to James. And then he starts praying for John. And then for Andrew. And then for the others. And so on. And I think he's there that evening thinking through each man individually. Thinking through their personalities. Thinking through their tendencies. Praying for them in areas of weakness. Praying for them in areas of their strength. Praying for them because specifically because they're going to be apostles, they're going to face difficulties in their lives that they wouldn't have faced if they weren't apostles. And I would suggest he was praying for them about those areas. He's praying for them for that they would grow in the Lord. He knows each one of them, and he spends the night in prayer for each one of them. And then the next morning or so, he'll go on and he'll begin to appoint them. Now, you can read the appointment of each of these disciples. Matthew tells us about it. Mark here tells us about it. And as I just referenced, Luke tells us about it as well. And the order there is almost always the same. It's not exactly the same, but it's almost always the same. The first person each time is Peter. And Peter would go on to be sort of the leader of these apostles. (coughs) Excuse me. You see his name is Simon there. Peter has been called by some the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he's always seeming to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, putting his foot in his mouth, as they say. But he is, and as you continue to read through the book of Acts and the letters and stuff that he wrote, he is a leader who God will go on to refine and use. Peter, yes, he put his foot in his mouth a lot of times, Uh, during the earthly ministry of Christ, and even after, shortly thereafter, Peter is the one that God will use to proclaim the gospel message on the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people would be saved. Pentecost is only 50 days after the Passover, less than two months after Jesus was crucified, and Peter had been denying the Lord, remember, with the little girl, and so on, and hiding for fear of the Jews and others that are around him. Less than two months later, God had done a changing work within him so that he would get up in front of thousands of people and 3,000 people would be converted as a result of the words that he shared on that particular day. God did a changing work in this man's life. He wasn't perfect when Jesus called him, but God began to transform him so that he could use him. Disciples number two and three are James and John. And we learn there that they're the sons of Zebedee. Again, their nickname is Boanerges, or however it is said, which is translated the sons of thunder. And they're called the sons of thunder because they have a fiery zeal and a destructive passion. On a later occasion, these two men, as there's a little community that would reject Jesus, they actually go to Jesus and say, look, we tried to you know, work with these people, share with them, you know, kind of prepare you to come in and speak to them, and they rejected you. Can we call down fire and kill them? As if Jesus would be like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's kill them. You know, and, and, but they did because they have this zeal for the Lord, and no one's going to reject the Lord or reject me or whatever it may be. But Jesus changes those two men as well. And so for James, instead of taking lives in the name of Jesus, Jesus, James would actually go on to be the first of the apostles to give his life for Jesus. And John, instead of calling down the wrath of God from heaven, John goes on to become the apostle of love, as he's known throughout history. And he wrote these magnificent words. This one day saying, let's call down fire to kill people. This is what John would go on to write. He would say, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent forth his Son, his only Son, into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
And he goes on from there. God had changed him. Like Peter and his older brother James, John was transformed into that new creation he had become upon believing in Jesus Christ. God changed him. Then you have this fellow Andrew in our list. Andrew, it seems, was the very first follower of Jesus Christ. He was a fellow, we don't know a lot about Andrew in the scriptures, but every time we see Andrew, we see him bringing other people to Jesus. And Andrew's the younger brother of Peter, and we know about Peter and his personality. I imagine he grew up in the shadow of his brother Peter. But Andrew, it seems, was a fellow perfectly content to be working behind the scenes and yet still doing his part to advance Jesus in the world. Andrew is this guy, as you look at him, is a guy that didn't need and likely didn't even want to be the center of of the attention. And though he is an apostle just like Peter is, and James is, and John is, as far as the Gospels are concerned, we don't know much about this guy other than that he was content to minister in relative obscurity, and God would use him. Then you have a guy named Philip listed there for us. He, too, was one of Jesus' earliest followers. We read of him right after the incident of where Andrew becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And Philip is the fellow that the Lord sought out, found him, and invited to come and follow him. And the first thing that he does after following the Lord is he goes and he invites a friend of his, a guy by the name of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is the sixth man listed in the list that we have here. Now, if you go back to that list from Mark chapter 3, he's also known as Bartholomew. Bartholomew means, if you will, the bar, B-A-R, that's son of. He's the son of Tholomew, or Tolmei is really the fellow's name. And so Nathaniel is his real name. Bartholomew is sort of his last name, if you will, the son of Tolmei. And so Philip then, he goes and he finds this guy, Nathaniel, and Nathaniel will also go on to become one of Jesus' apostles. Now, if you know the story of Nathaniel, it's recorded for us in John chapter 1, when he is told, that when someone comes to him and says, we have found the Messiah, Nathaniel's skeptical. Oh yeah, where is he from? Nazareth. Ugh. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? That's him. That is Nathaniel. And so I love Philip in that instance there. Because Philip says, look, man, you don't want to follow him, don't follow him. You want to go to hell, go to hell. Now, he doesn't say that. He says to him, look, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just telling you, I met this dude, and he's fantastic, and I think he's the Messiah. And he says to him, come and see. Just come and see. I'm not going to get into a big argument with you. Come and see who this guy is. Now, what I love about Nathaniel is some people are skeptics just because they want to be skeptical about everything. And the reality is they don't want to follow the Messiah or follow Jesus. But what I love about Nathaniel is when Philip says to him, come and see, Nathaniel comes and he sees. And he makes up his mind for himself. And we read that there in that particular thing. If, he, if you will, he is a healthy skeptic. He doesn't just buy into something because other people have bought into it. But he doesn't just blow it off either. And he doesn't just pretend like it doesn't matter. He investigates these things. He goes and he finds the Lord. And based on his encounter with the Lord, he believes and he begins to trust the Lord and walk with him. He goes on to become one of Jesus' apostles. The next guy in the list... (coughs) Sorry, I don't know what to do. I got a cough. Can you turn me off for a second while I cough? Can you do that? (coughs) That worked out. All right, I'm ready. The next guy is Matthew. And we learned about Matthew. Matthew is the fellow who was known as Levi. He was the tax collector. Again, the worst of the worst sinners of his first century Jewish society. But notice this about him, and we made a lot of points about him last time. Matthew didn't let his past hinder his future as far as serving Jesus Christ is concerned. So Matthew is a guy that came to Christ, was changed by Christ, and then he was used by Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Next guy that we have is Thomas. Now, a lot of us know Thomas. Thomas has the nickname Doubting Thomas. Poor Thomas. Thomas is the one who was absent the day that Jesus first appeared after he was raised from the dead. Thomas was absent that day. And Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples. Thomas isn't there. 
Thomas then goes on to refuse to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, saying these words, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, he says, I will not believe. Now, we might read that, and we might think, you know, first off, I can't believe he's not with the others. What's he, what's he out doing? You know, why isn't he with everybody else? But the reason he wasn't with the others is because the others were locked away in fear of the Jewish community around them. That's what the passage tells us, that they were locked out. Now, Thomas isn't there. Now, that doesn't mean he was out running around, you know, fooling around or something like that. But what you can take from that is Thomas was courageous enough to be out and about in society while everybody else is hiding away in some particular corner here. He's out and about in the streets. There's another interaction with Thomas where I think it, it, it adds to this idea of the type of person that he was. This is found in John chapter 11. And there in John chapter 11, Jesus says, we need to go down to, to this particular place, the story with Lazarus and so on. We need to go there. Somebody speaks up and they said, Lord, those, they wanted to kill you there. And Thomas jumps in, well, then why don't we all go with them and die with them, he says there. And eventually, everybody says, oh, yeah, okay, let's go with Jesus and die with Jesus. But again, it speaks to his courage. And so he's doubting Thomas and so on and so forth, but he's also a man of great courage. And his courage, his devotion to the Lord, I'll go and die with the Lord if need be. He didn't read the end of these stories. He doesn't know the outcome of this particular trip down there to Bethany. But his courage and his devotion to the Lord influences the rest of the disciples, and eventually they all go down to die with the Lord, potentially, if that's what's going to happen. That's Thomas. The Lord calls him and uses that courage. Now, after Matthew, after Thomas, you have a fellow by the name of James, the son of Alphaeus. The only thing we know about James from the Scripture is that he's one of the twelve, that his dad's name is Alphaeus. Another place we learn that his mom's name is Mary, and in another place, we learn that he has a brother named Joses, uh, J-O-S-E-S. The ESV refers to him as James the Younger. It, that's later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Other versions, however, I think get it right there. And they refer to him as James the Less. Well, that kind of stinks. James the Younger, James the Less. Nowhere in the New Testament... Does the word translated either younger or less here in our versions? Nowhere in the New Testament is it translated younger. It's always translated the less in the Greek. Or other words that are used here is the smaller one or the littler one. Now, you can make the connection. Your little brother is your younger brother. But the, the word is used to describe a little fella, a little guy. And so this guy is James the little guy. And James, a little guy, will go on to be one of the apostles who will be used to serve the Lord. I think that's pretty exciting here. Little James. Then there is this guy by the name of Thaddeus. Thaddeus is sometimes listed as uh, Lydeus. Uh, instead of a TH, it begins with an L there in some versions of our Bible. Uh, but this guy Thaddeus or Lydeus there, Luke calls him something different altogether. Luke calls him Judas the son of James, not that Judas. That's probably why he said, call me Thaddeus or whatever here, because there's a different guy named Judas here. Thaddeus was likely a nickname. Thaddeus means large-hearted. It means courageous. And no doubt it's a moniker that he earned as the man who was willing to be courageous in certain circumstances. And so they called him that. They called him Thaddeus, but that's Judas, uh, the son of James. Then we have Simon the Zealot, the last guy we're going to consider today. Maybe your Bible version, if you're, you're looking at it in Mark chapter 3, maybe your Bible version calls him Simon the Canaanite. Now we know a lot about the area of Canaan, and so we think, oh, he must be a guy from the Canaanites or something. It's, it's an unfortunate translation, if you will. It comes from a Hebrew word that sounds like Cana, essentially, which literally means zealous. And so this guy, the Canaanite, uh, is the zealous one. And that's why in our more modern translations, he's called Simon the Zealot. Now, let's. And the term in Jesus' day, it signified a well-known, widely feared outlaw political party. An outlawed political party that used terrorism and murder to spread their message. 
And so, you know, you've been on, on election day, you've probably been on election day, and there's people that kind of gather somewhat near the polling booth, and they have their signs, don't forget, vote for him, vote for her, she's the greatest, whatever it may be. Well, these guys would be out there, and as you're walking to the polling booth, they would murder you, or whatever. If, you know, you were wearing blue that day, or, you know, red, you must be a Republican, they'd murder you and take you out so you wouldn't vote. What these guys would do, the Roman soldiers, they had these uniforms. You remember Paul the Apostle in the book of Ephesians? He said they had the breastplate of righteousness and their feet are shot and so on. He goes through that whole Roman uniform. Well, there was a small gap between one part of the uniform and another part of the uniform in the back. And what these guys would do is they'd go into a crowd of people where there was a Roman soldier and they would take their dagger and they would shove it right between those two portions of the uh, uniform and they would kill the Roman soldier. And then they would quickly, like, my God, who is these people? There's somebody over here. And they would take their sword, they'd put it away and, oh my goodness, what happened? And all the crowd is like, "I, I didn't do it, man, or whatever. And then they would slip away. And that was their way they were going to conquer the Romans because the Romans had 6,000 members of the the legion coming in to keep the Jewish people in order. They were never going to be able to beat them. And so they would defeat them with this, if you will, this guerrilla warfare or these acts of terrorism and things like that. That are the zealots. The zealots hated the Romans and their goal was to cause enough hassle that the Romans might want to leave. They wanted to overthrow their occupation. They were militant. They were violent. And because they were significantly, we might use the term, outgunned, they sought to accomplish their purposes by secretly assassinating Roman soldiers, Roman political leaders, and anyone who opposed them. One group the zealots particularly hated were the tax collectors. Now we got a problem. Because one of Jesus' other apostles is a former tax collector. And so sitting in this group, and I imagine way over here is Matthew, and way over here is Simon the Zealot, at least for a while. Because Simon the Zealot grew up hating a guy like Matthew. And so I I was thinking about this. Every day that Simon the Zealot was with Matthew and didn't kill Matthew was a miracle and a testimony of God's changing work. Every single day, he could look back and say, Lord, I, I made it today. I didn't kill that guy. You know, you're so good. You're working in my life. So the Lord had assembled an amaz- uh, uh, such an amazing group of people here. But he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the best universities that are there, would have been down in Jerusalem. He doesn't look for, you know, a listing, you know, who finished first, second, third in your class. You know, I want to interview those particular people. Jesus went and he found 12 ordinary men. I'll talk about Judas Iscariot next week because he would go on to betray. So he goes and he finds, if you will, 11 ordinary men and then catches about him. He calls them. He prays for them. He's with them where he trains them. And then he sends them out to do his work. And through those 11 men, if you will, he turns the world upside down, as it tells us in the book of Acts chapter 17. Now, my question for us is this, can Jesus do that through us? And I would say to you, the answer is absolutely yes. Because notice this, can Jesus call you? Well, the Bible says if you're a Christian, he has called you. 1 Corinthians chapter 126 says this, consider your calling, brothers, sisters, where not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Amen? That's this crowd, I can tell you. Not many of us were powerful. Not many of us are of noble birth. So can Jesus call you? If you're a Christian, he has called you. Does Jesus pray for you as he did those disciples? Well, Romans chapter 8.34 says that he does right now. Intercedes at the right hand of the Father for us. Is he able to be with us as he was with them? James tells us. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts and purify you sinners. Purify your hearts. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. But he says there, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You see, the Lord loves to use the common. And he loves to use the ordinary so that he can accomplish the uncommon and the extraordinary. And so don't worry if you have some rough edges. Look at these guys. 
that he called there. I only murdered 42 people. You know what I mean? Could you use me? I can work with you. Right? They have rough edges that needed to be filed off. But Jesus does that. He trained up Peter and James and John, Andrew and Philip. He transformed Matthew. He transformed Simon the Zealot. And he made them brothers for a common cause. He took a little fellow like James the Little and a fellow who was best known for who he was related to as opposed to who he was, and he used them. And he used each one of these men to transform the world. The impact of these 11 men continues to impact the world to this day. How remarkable. And they are living proof, proof I should say, that God's strength is made perfect in man's weakness so that he is the one that gets the glory. And that's what this is all about, bringing glory to the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Let him work in your life. He wants to use you in great ways. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that wonderful truth. And Lord, we have been a people that are, have been called unto yourselves. Many of us in this room have responded to that calling. We pray for any that have not yet. Lord, that they would respond to the offer of forgiveness and cleansing and salvation that is in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for all of us that have responded, we know that you've called us to be with us, that you might send us forth. And Lord, I know that the tendency for some of us is just send me forth. Give me a mission. I'm ready to go. And we don't really want to spend time with you anymore. And others of us, we just want to spend time with you. We don't want to be sent forth. And Lord, there's just a balance of those two things. And so would you do just that balancing work within our hearts? You draw us into your presence that we would be near you and then you'd send us forth that we might be used by and for you. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.